Cassie with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. And welcome to this latest episode of the RoboHub podcast. Today, we will get to hear more about Cassie, a robot delivery ostrich. Yep, you heard right, I said ostrich. As many of you will know, delivery is one of the hot topics in robotics and has been for several years, from parcel company Hermes self-driving Starship technology robots to Amazon Prime's delivery drones. At Agility Robotics, a spin-off company of Oregon State University, engineers have developed a dynamic bipedal robot called Cassie, which looks a little like an ostrich due to its leg design, which allows the robot to efficiently navigate environments created by humans, who are also, of course, bipedal, making it a great contender for delivery applications. Our interviewer, Audro, spoke to Jonathan Hurst, Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Oregon State University and CTO and co-founder of Agility Robotics. They discussed legged locomotion and more specifically, Cassie's design, sensors, actuators and future applications. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Would you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Jonathan Hurst. Uh, I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Agility Robotics and uh, also an Associate Professor and the College of Engineering Dean's Professor at Oregon State University in the robotics program we have there. What motivates your research? Uh, I just have had a lifelong interest in legged locomotion and understanding how uh, animals move and, more importantly, understanding how to reproduce their um, effectiveness in the world. So I, I say that carefully. I'm not trying to copy what animals do, but I do want robots to be able to go everywhere animals and humans can go. So there may be some things that we actually do differently in robotics because we're building machines out of carbon fiber and electric motors and computers instead of muscle and bone and brain. Uh, but there's almost certainly going to be some unifying uh, physics, some things that are very closely related uh, and, and that's what I seek to understand in my mm -hmm. research and then really implement it and make useful machines in, in the company now. Mm -hmm. And why walking? Well, not just walking. Walking, running, skipping, jumping, yep. hopping. Why legged All locomotion? of the approach. Um, well, I think you, I could ask what's the pragmatic reason and what's the real reason. The pragmatic reason is we've designed uh, our environment around us like as humans, we've designed our buildings, our sidewalks, uh, our world around allowing humans to navigate it well. Uh, and in addition, humans and animals can go most places on the planet. So at the very least, we know that legs are a good solution for getting around in the world. I don't want to make the argument there that the optimal solution or the best solution or I think that wheels and bicycles and cars and aerial drones and flying and all those things have their places, but legs are a very, very good solution. It's something where we have a clear example looking at biology of something that outperforms by far anything that robots do, uh, but we absolutely know that it's possible. Uh, 
and so it's something that feels very worth working towards because I know it's achievable, we don't know how to do it yet, and uh, it would be very, very useful if we could have robots that could go anywhere people can go. And now, that's the pragmatic and, and practical reason. I would say the real reason is because I just think it's the coolest thing. I'm really excited about it. You know, I've, for years and when I was a kid, daydream about machines that are able to do all the kind of dynamics, uh, dynamic motions of, uh, that you see from animals and humans as they walk and run around. Mm -hmm. I, it, I guess it's like, it's the same reason that people go to watch um, martial arts movies. You know, it's just cool to watch. It's just really neat. And, and it's even cooler, I think, to have a machine that is controlled in a precise way doing really dynamic motions. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's fun and useful. That's a good com com uh, combination of things, isn't it? Definitely. Now, can you tell me a bit of how you think about walking robots? Passive dynamics, active dynamics, these kinds of things? Yeah. Um, I think about legged locomotion as a, uh, a dynamical phenomenon that we are trying to understand. And by that I mean it's not just a set of engineering tricks. We're not trying to achieve the goal of having a machine that places one foot in front of the other for the purpose of saying that we are able to walk. Okay, that's not the goal. The goal is to capture the efficiency, the agility, the robustness, the, uh, the uh, st stability, the ability of, of animals to, to go everywhere. And I think that there's kind of a, um, well, a dynamical phenomenon, something about how the center of mass interacts with the springs in the legs and the reflexes to gain some kind of inherent and very stable behavior. Uh, and I, I like to draw the analogy to a pendulum, like on a grandfather clock. Um, pendular dynamics have always existed the fact that when you swing uh, a pendulum, the amplitude does not really affect the frequency is something that has always existed. That's just physics. Now, it took people a long time to figure that out, to understand it, to write down the equations to describe it, and then hundreds of years to do engineering best practices with clock escapements to make grandfather clocks that utilize the pendular dynamics to actually keep time in a useful way. And I think... Similarly, uh, legged locomotion as a dynamical phenomenon has always existed. Animals have, through evolution and over the millions of years, figured out how to utilize that dynamical phenomenon to get around in the world. And as a community of uh, roboticists and biomechanic, biomechanists and so on, uh, we are slowly discovering that. Uh, and as engineers, we're trying to do the engineering best practices to then utilize those those dynamics so that's kind of how I see it and now in terms of implementing it uh, if we had actuators that were hundred percent efficient with perfect force rendition and no limits on torque and so on then we could come up with if we understood it just write down the equation put it in your model make a system with these magical actuators and then voila we've got an amazing legged locomotion thing that can get around in the world the problem, of course, is that all actuators have dynamics. They have limitations. They have torque limits. They have speed limits. They have mass. Uh, they have a lot of reflected inertia mm -hmm. that's going to really influence when things hit the ground with the repeated impacts of leg locomotion. Mm -hmm. So given that actuator dynamics exist, they almost never are what you would want. They get in the way of everything. 
Uh, that means that a lot of the behavior that we want to generate needs to be built into the hardware. And so I think that having the right number of links in the leg, having the joints be in the right location, the right inertia distribution of the leg, mm -hmm. the, uh, having the right spring functions in the right places is uh, a very big part of capturing this dynamical phenomenon that we're trying to do. So rather than, you know, if, if you do it entirely in software, well, now it's sort of a simulation of this dynamical phenomenon. I think that, that leg locomotion uh, is, is, is based on physics, and it is based on an interaction between masses and springs and things moving a certain way, and then probably some active control and reflex actions that are all integrated. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I see this. It's a fairly complex, uh, interesting system that has mm -hmm. to utilize a certain set of physics. So we want to build our passive dynamics and have those passive dynamics be integrated with our control in a way where you're kind of handing off control from one to the other in, mm -hmm. a, in a very intelligent way. Gotcha. And can you tell me how this applies to Cassie? Well, and introduce Cassie. Okay, sure. So. Cassie is the uh, the first product of Agility Robotics. It was uh, designed, the first prototype designed initially at Oregon State. Um, Agility Robotics is a spinoff of Oregon State University. And it's based on our prior robot, Atreus. Atreus uh, was a scientific demonstrator machine, basically. We designed a robot to act as closely as possible to this simple reduced order spring mass model. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to say is we, we, we think we can understand this really simple spring mass model. And we think that this really captures some basic physics of legged locomotion. Let's build a machine that is as close as we can get it to that simple model. And then maybe we can control this machine and demonstrate those same physics. And so that's what we did. It was a, it was a lengthy project. And Atreus uh, ultimately was able to walk and run outside, do the gradual transitions between walking and running, handle great big steps up and down and walk on different ground impedances and all of that as part of the kind of inherent stability and robustness uh, of the system. So I feel like with Atreus, we really captured uh, at least a big piece of that dynamical phenomenon of legged locomotion that I'm talking about. And Atreus is the first robot to reproduce uh, human walking gait dynamics. So if you look at Atreus and the data measuring the center of mass motion and say walk it over a force plate on the ground, mm -hmm. measure the ground reaction forces in the center of mass motion, it's a very close match to human gait dynamics. And I had a graduate student walk over the, the plate and the robot walk over the plate and we get the same uh, measurements. Mm -hmm. so, what kind of things did you see? So what were these ground force or reaction forces? Oh, we see it's see? a typical like M-shaped ground reaction force pattern uh, on each foot. Um, yep. And... Uh, uh, you know, the center of mass motion that corresponds to that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, well, why is it M-shaped? Uh, the initial uh, impact with the ground, the, mm -hmm. the spring compresses and the force goes up, and then through the center of, of mass, you're kind of going up over, kind of like an inverted pendulum a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, and then you come back down on the spring a little bit for the toe-off, and then you lift off with the foot. Gotcha. And so human walking has this characteristic uh, ground reaction force profile, mm -hmm. and Atreus uh, captured that as well. Um, and then Atreus was also able to do this uh, start at the walking gait, which is this human-like walking gait, and do this gradual transition up to a human-like running gait, where you get the same ground reaction forces, the same symptoms, the same measurements as you would from a human running as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so 
at that point, it was clear that we had kind of cracked this nut, this um, kind of this core piece. Of course, there's still an awful lot to learn, an awful lot to figure out with legged locomotion. But the core piece of can we do the walking and running, can we understand the basics, is it real and not just something in simulation, we showed that with Atreus. So the time was right then to uh, uh, start implementing something useful with this. Right? Atreus was a science demonstrator. Now... Cassie is our kind of first step out of the research laboratory, our first step to distributing a piece of hardware to a lot of other researchers mm-hmm. um, that is more capable than Atreus. It's, it is able to capture those dynamics, but also can steer uh, and also has feet so that it can balance and apply ankle torques. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's part of our effort. We're going to continue improving and revising uh, towards, towards the goal of having these pragmatic, practically useful mm-hmm. robots in human environments and outside in the world. Gotcha. Would you describe what Cassie looks like? What does Cassie look like? Uh, I think Cassie looks a bit like um, a very leggy bird without feathers yeah. or a head. Yeah. Or, or maybe the head is sort of like a, a very athletic Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc., right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, we've got shells on the outside of it that are uh, a very, very tough polymer material with a bit of foam behind each of them mm-hmm. uh, covering all of the aluminum parts. So the robot is designed to be very tough and, um, uh, you know, sleek. So when it's walking along and running and people are doing their research with this machine and it falls flat on its face on sharp rocks or on concrete, it's fine. Pick it up and keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we haven't done a whole lot of testing. We've definitely fallen a number of times, and it hasn't broken yet. But now we've got this robot out to a number of different launch customers, um, and they're definitely going to abuse the robot. So we'll see, right? Mm-hmm. And so that'll be an ongoing way. Uh, we will support these robots and continue to improve them to, to make them better and tougher and, and, mm-hmm. and really useful in the world. And it just it's about, how tall is it, would you say? The, if the legs are completely straightened, which they, they never are in operation, it's yes. about one meter leg length. Gotcha. So when you're standing next to a Cassie robot, it's about a little bit higher than waist high. Yep. And uh, it's really interesting watching people's reactions because the robot, uh, you know, there's not a lot of wires hanging off of it. There's not a lot of, it, it looks like something that... Uh, Futuristic, in a sense, out of a movie, almost. Well, I hope so, right? We wanted yeah. to make something that 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 is polished and is a product and is something that um, is very clean. Uh, uh, so there's a public walkway that goes by uh, Agility Robotics, and you know there's people taking a walk and riding their bike and walking their dogs and things like that. And we walk our robot by, and the vast majority of people react to the robot the same way they would to somebody's well-behaved dog. Oh, yeah. You kind of give it a small amount of personal space. You just walk right by it, and maybe they glance at it and then keep going on with their phone conversation or whatever they were doing. Very few people even really take a second look, which I find just strange. I don't mm-hmm. know. It, it may be that people are so familiar with robots and movies that now it seems like it's a reasonably common thing. Um, so I don't get a whole lot of reactions from it. Possibly. Now, would you tell me a bit about the sensors and actuators? Uh, yeah, I mean, the current Cassie robot has no external sensors, so there's no computer vision, no awareness of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's complete proprioceptive data, so you have um, complete state information about where the legs are mm-hmm. and how fast they're moving. We also have an inertial measurement unit on board, so that mm-hmm. tells you the orientation of the body. And that's enough information to allow us to uh, do all the walking and running we want to do. There are 10 motors 
total. Mm -hmm. We have adduction, abduction for each leg. We yep. have leg swing for each leg, leg extension for each leg. Mm -hmm. um, roughly, the motors don't directly correlate to leg length, but there's two motors on the leg for leg length and leg swing. Yep. Uh, we also have motors on the ankles for ankle torque and then a yaw, yaw motor for the entire leg. Mm -hmm. So five actuators per, per gotcha. leg. Are the joints series elastic? Yes, we have physical compliance on two of the joints, mm -hmm. on the main planar, the, the big ones, the big powerful ones, leg extension and leg swing. Uh, there are springs uh, in, in those two degrees of freedom. So the hips and the knees, the, essentially? Or it's, it's yeah. because it's... Um, well, we don't, for the ankles, for the yaw, and for yes. the adduction, abduction, it's not really necessary. Those are very high torque, very low speed sorts yep. of motions uh, that don't have major impacts with the ground. Mm -hmm. But for leg swing and leg length, uh, you know, we want to utilize that passive dynamics of impacting the ground and bouncing along on this spring mass behavior. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, there are physical springs there. Now, those physical springs are coordinated with the software control. So some of the compliance, at least in our controller, is implemented through, say, a proportional controller in, in the software. Mm -hmm. But more than half, or at least half, of the, um, of the compliance in the legs is implemented through that physical compliance to enable that, that impact and mm -hmm. the energy storage. And so with Cassie, what kind of experiments are you hoping to run? Or what um, direction... Well, Cassie is a really capable platform. Like yes. it's matching a uh, a model for passive dynamics mm -hmm. that we now have a lot of evidence is a really uh, a capable one for walking and running. Mm -hmm. But in terms of controls, you know, we have some demonstration controllers which um, which work for for some kinds of terrain and things like that. But there are so many much more powerful. Con approaches to how we would control a machine like this and mm -hmm. a lot of people want to put sensors and perception on it and start thinking about footstep planning and how do you plan ahead for stairs and uh, stepping stones and things like that mm -hmm. uh, I mean there's a lot of approaches and we want to allow people to just try them all gotcha so uh, from Atreus and previous walking robots mm -hmm. what, what kind of things have you learned that you needed to have on Cassie like, what are some of your lessons from past robots, and then what are the things you learned to omit? What are some lessons from Atreus? That's a good question. Um, and prior robots. I mean, certainly having physical springs for that uh, spring mass behavior is one of the, the, the foundations that I think is really necessary mm -hmm. for capturing legged locomotion. Gotcha, and that's good for impact and energy storage? Well, so let's see. The springs are important for a couple and reasons. Force, measuring force or torque? So, number one, it's about, I would say, power uh, power production. So when you're bouncing along, at some point in your stride, you're absorbing a, at a very high rate, very large forces. And then when you're lifting off the ground again, especially in a running gait, you're pushing very hard at very fast rates. Mm -hmm. Doing that with just an electric motor or hydraulic actuator just means you have to have really big, powerful actuators on there. Mm -hmm. But if you have a spring on there, springs are very good at um, arbitrary velocity at very high force. Uh, and so your motor can more hold its torque, and you need more of a torque motor, but mm -hmm. you don't have to be going at such a high rate in order to do the high power output. So having those springs really allows you to amplify the power output of your actuators and uh, have more reasonably sized actuators on, on a machine that's still going to be very, very capable. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The other important thing is the, the impact um, you know, tolerance, I guess. Not only does it 
prevent these inelastic collisions, which result in huge force spikes when it impacts the ground. If you have just a straight-up gear motor, you hit mm-hmm. the ground, there's just this huge force that breaks things. Yep. So you eliminate strips that. Strips gears and things. Yeah, yep. strips gears. So you eliminate that, but it's also... Um, you, it's also just control-wise. You don't want these sort of jarring impacts that are very unpredictable from a model point. If you have a fairly soft spring in series, the instant after impact, there's still no force being applied, right? There's just force that gradually increases over time as the spring, spring begins to compress. And that's really important for having a smooth uh, control system. Mm-hmm. So the power amplification, the energy cycling, energy going in and out of a mechanical spring is far, far more efficient than trying to regenerate negative work through a transmission, through an electric motor, uh, put it through the electronics back into the power bus, and then back through that whole system again. You lose a lot of your energy hmm. uh, transferring it through that whole system. But if you have a physical, mechanical spring, really the only thing that's lost is a very small amount of damping in the spring and whatever unsprung mass you have, like the tow mass that impacts the ground, that inelastic collision. So it's far, mm-hmm. far more efficient for the energy cycling of a gate. So then you can think of walking and running uh, not as an exercise for control, but more as a cycle of energy, energy mm-hmm. that is being stored alternately in kinetic energy of the motion of the center of mass, gravitational energy of the height of the center of mass, and potential energy of the physical spring. And mm-hmm. so if you have this kind of cycle of energy through those systems, and your controller is really just kind of trying to steer that energy and maybe add a little bit and pump it at the right time, mm-hmm. that, that's, uh, that's where you get the efficiency of leg of locomotion. Um, let's see. Another important part of the spring is, is um, if you have a very large spring mass system and you've got a very large oscillation that's on the order of your, of your strides, right? Every step is some oscillation of your, of mm-hmm. your, of your gait then changes in ground impedance, like going from concrete to grass or mud or sand or, or unexpected steps up or steps down, uh, disturbances, things like that, really don't affect the center of mass motion very much mm-hmm. because your behavior of your system is still very much dominated by that spring mass oscillation with the very soft physical springs. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, that's another reason. So what have I gone so far? I've said... Power, amplification, energy efficiency, impact tolerance. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That pretty much covers it. I think that's a, at Wait, least so enough for compelling reasons for physical spring. Yes. And then, so that's one of the large lessons from Atreus. Any other ones? Well, Atreus had the physical springs and did that well. Yes. Okay, so that's but a so foundation. took we that from Atreus. Um, well, we, we knew that when we were building Atreus as of well. Of course. And so that was a part of it. One of the things that we learned from Atreus uh, had to do with adding some damping and dissipation into the system. So with Atreus, uh, things started to work really well when we put physical springs on the robot that were much stiffer than they needed to be, really, and then had software springs, uh, proportional controller and and damping, Mm -hmm. that sort of uh, combined with physical springs to create the overall compliance that you wanted. Mm -hmm. And basically having that dissipation uh, as you're walking and running, because you have such an under-actuated system and can't fully control all the modes of oscillation and everything... You want just general damping to throw away a lot of, of energy in mm-hmm. the system constantly yes. and then pump it where you're only pumping the energy in exactly the direction you want it to be going. So, for example, you, you take an unexpected bump on the ground that your foot hits sideways and you start exciting an oscillation in one of the modes you can't really control. Mm-hmm. If it's a reasonably damped system, that mode of oscillation is going to die out. Mm-hmm. Now, your walking and running gait will also be a mode of oscillation that's dying out, but given that you're 
extending your leg with every stride with yep. your motors and injecting, and adding, energy. injecting yes. energy, it keeps that mode of oscillation going. So it's a bit of a trade-off, I think, if you have a fair amount of dissipation in your system, you have a much better stability but lower efficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have almost no dissipation in your system, maybe you can get a very efficient system, but then energy goes into a spring when you hit uh, some encounter some bump or uh, feature of the environment that wasn't exactly the direction you wanted, mm -hmm. and it's going to come back out in some direction that you probably don't want, uh, and it's hard to control that with an underactuated system. Mm -hmm. So we learned that dissipation is pretty important for overall stability, just blind dissipation across mm -hmm. the board. Now, one of our biggest, hardest lessons with Atreus had to do with uh, antagonistic work, is what we've, we've called it. And basically, it's just motors working against one another. Mm. Um, with Atreus in particular, the motors are arranged such that if you're hopping up and down, they, they work together. They can cooperate. Both motors are applying torque to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. But if you are applying force from both motors to extend the leg and also swinging the leg backwards, like through the stance phase... Okay, now one motor is doing a lot of positive work and the other motor is doing a lot of negative work. Mm. Effectively, one motor is acting like a brake and the other motor has to do all of the work of the gate plus all of the work to overcome the, the negative work, mm -hmm. that's the braking from the other motor. And that's what we call the antagonistic work. It's not doing any work on the world. It's just mm. one motor doing work on the other. And that's directly a consequence of the kinematics uh, of the limb mm -hmm. and how that relates to the specific task you're trying to achieve. And it is very task-specific. Yes. So with Cassie, we have... Does that ever create desirable stiffness in the, in the leg? If you are doing antagonistic... It's not about or... stiffness. The springs don't have to be on the same uh, yeah. degree of freedom as the motor. You can have mm -hmm. springs in a different orientation throughout of the course. leg than, than, your, than your motors are. It's just a matter of having one motor have to do far more work than mm -hmm. is strictly necessary for the task you're trying to achieve. So it's just inefficient. It's incredibly this. inefficient. You mm -hmm. have this internal loop of work that's going from motor, one motor through the other, back and through the electrical bus and back through the motor again and so you're just wasting mm -hmm. most of it through all the inefficiency of your transmission plus your one of your motors has to be much more powerful than than really would otherwise be necessary mm -hmm. um, but it's very task specific so you can't create if say you have a two degree of freedom uh, actuator or system that you're trying to do something with and you have two actuators on it it's only going to eliminate an antagonistic work for a very specific task the only way you can eliminate antagonistic work for many, many tasks is having lots of redundant actuators that activate in different regions. Mm -hmm. But that's hard to do. We don't want to carry around a lot of dead weight and a lot of extra motors. So we know with Cassie what we're trying to do, and we've designed the leg so that there is no antagonistic work when we're doing some of the walking and running strides in that specific task. Now, if we want to do something else, it may be, say, stairs. I don't know. I haven't really checked. But stairs or squats or or walking backwards, or some other unusual task, we may get a fair amount of this antagonistic work, mm -hmm. but that's okay. We're not really trying to be as efficient and as effective for things that aren't walking and running. So that was the big change between Atreus and Cassie. Mm -hmm. Atreus worked. It had a really great model. It, did, it demonstrated the science. Cassie is eliminating and understanding that, uh, that antagonistic work problem we had with Atreus. Mm -hmm. Now, what parts of Cassie have been inspired by biology? Um, interestingly, the leg configuration, the shape of the leg, mm -hmm. it looks very much like uh, a theropod of some sort, like um, avian kind of leg morphology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like um, an ostrich to me or yeah, something. Yeah, but that was completely not intentional. That leg configuration is strictly mm -hmm. a result of the math that we did to eliminate the antagonistic work mm -hmm. while also minimizing uh, or simplifying our transmission as much as we possibly could. 
So it's a coincidence if morphologically... It appears. Actually, I wouldn't say it's a coincidence. I would say we're probably starting to get at some of the reasons that animal legs are shaped the way they are. But we're designing our robot legs for engineering purposes and engineering reasons for performance and not to try and mimic or copy uh, animals in any way. Hmm. Can you give me sort of an intuition of why it would converge on the result that looks kind of like an ostrich leg? Or a... So you... Well... In effect, we have basically one motor that does leg length. Yes. And so that motor is the one that needs to apply lots of torque to the mm-hmm. ground when you're, when you're bouncing along. And, say, apply high forces, but not go very fast. It just has to have holding torque throughout stance. And that's separated from the swing leg uh, motor, the hip motor, which has to move quickly, but at very, very low torques uh, during that same time. And so that's fine. The problem is when you have two motors that have to both apply large torques and go through a fast swing, uh, especially if one is in the opposite direction of the other. Hmm. And so we've basically set the configuration so that they don't cross in that way. Gotcha. Okay. So it's a trade-off between the two when you pick the good middle, basically. Yeah, what's the right word for it? You pick the, the basis function, basically. Yep. Uh, when you move one motor, which direction is the toe going to go? Mm-hmm. When you move the other motor, which direction is the toe going to go? Gotcha. And if you have them both kind of crossed in a way that they have to both apply torque and velocity in um, you know, ways that cause an antagonistic work... Uh, so we, we, we just shifted the basis function, which you do by shifting uh, the kinematics or the transmission uh, mm-hmm. function of, of the leg. Gotcha. And similar for the knee joint. or um, It's not actually the knee it's joint. It's an interaction but... between the joints. Yes. So having one motor that does leg length and one motor that does leg angle is at least one of many ways to mm-hmm. kind of separate it out so that they're not, the motors are not fighting one another I see. Uh, yes. during this specific task. Gotcha. And then how does agility robotics relate? With this, the spin-up company? Well, agility is where we do the the engineering and the development and the design and and build these machines. Mm -hmm. Um, At the university, uh, you know, I'm I'm interested in pursuing the open-ended questions of how how things work. And at Agility Robotics, it's more when we have an idea about the the basic principles of something. Mm -hmm. And now we need to have very capable and competent engineering for making the right transmission, for calculating a leg configuration, for doing our power electronics, um, mm-hmm. for putting together the computing, for software engineering, making a machine that is going to be reliable, robust, and tough and, and useful in the world. It's just um, having experienced engineers who've done it before is really important for that. Uh, having students come in who don't necessarily have any experience is actually, in my opinion, important for generating new ideas. Hmm. So they kind of each have their their purpose and their role. Gotcha. And so a few universities have CASI now. Yeah. It's, it's primarily universities that are getting CASI? Primarily. We're also talking with and working with uh, commercial R&D as mm-hmm. we look towards um, big markets like uh, package delivery and logistics. Uh, we're looking towards in-home robots. We look mm-hmm. towards outdoor uh, real-time data collection and inspection. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different applications for when legs can go where mm-hmm. robots can go where people can go. What are some of the bigger impacts of having robots that can go where people can go? You know, this is something I've, I've thought a lot about. Um, 
I think that having robots with legs that can go in human environments and go everywhere people can go is going to have a pretty major impact on our society. Uh, I think analogous in many ways to the impact the automobile has had. Uh, just one example is going to be the, the package delivery and logistics. Um, we know that vehicles are increasingly becoming autonomous. Uh, car companies are increasingly going to be providing transportation as a service, the sort of thing where you just tap an app on your phone and the vehicle comes and picks you up and fewer and fewer people are owning vehicles. So when you have large fleets of autonomous vehicles on the road, uh, the next logical step is outside of peak people-carrying times, you're carrying packages and doing logistics. And this is important not just for ordering things online and having it arrive at your house, but also for all manufactured goods, everything. Just the logistics chain is going to change a lot when you have these huge fleets of autonomous vehicles on the road. Now, how do you get the package from the curb to the doorstep? And how do you navigate through a human environment? That's a perfect application for legs. And it's kind of one of the enabling uh, pieces that is going to be needed for that logistics chain. Uh, I think that wheels and flying will have their niches and their specific places, but certainly in most human environments, legs are going to be uh, very effective at that. So now let's just imagine a number of years down the road when we have these fleets of vehicles and uh, in each of these vehicles is an autonomous, uh, you know, a legged, legged robot that can deliver packages, and they're not very expensive machines, um, certainly something that uh, they, can, they can be bought and deployed by the thousands and thousands. Now, anything that you need can be ordered and arrive at your house in a very short amount of time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week through a completely automated logistics chain. It changes uh, traffic patterns. It changes how retail is done. It changes people's weekend uh, you know, chores. I know every weekend what I do, I have, a, I have two daughters, uh, they're four and seven, and every weekend we plan out our our meals for the week and we pile the kids in the car and we go to Costco and Target and the grocery store and run all the various errands. And it's not something that we want to do. It's something that we need to do. These are just the chores that we need to do on a regular basis. If we could not do that and just have this stuff delivered to our house on a daily basis or on a weekly basis or however it's done, uh, we get more free time. We get to do what we want to do with our family. It really, I think, would change our lifestyle pretty significantly because uh, we spend a fair amount of time just doing these kind of chores. So I, I think that's just one example where you might imagine what legs and the ability to go where people are going to go um, is going to have a big impact. Uh, and you can imagine a lot, a lot more. I mean, our smartphones bring the knowledge base of the Internet with us wherever we go. Uh, but it's just information that you can interact with. Now, if that same knowledge base can effectively interact with the world physically, uh, walk through the world, open and close doors, um, do things for us, uh, that opens so many doors and so many possibilities. So I, I think it's really important. I think that uh, legs and the ability of robots to go through human environments is going to be something that evolves and grows over the next 50, 100 years, just like the automotive industry did. I think we're in the very early days of it, but we're just now starting to get to the point where I think that using legs for specific applications are going to be 
directly useful, not something that's just a curiosity, not something that's just neat for entertainment purposes, uh, but something that is directly useful, something that ha enables a robot to do something, go places where normally it would require a person, but maybe it's dangerous or it's dull or it's dirty, you know, the 3Ds of robotics. So any kind of just stacking in one pile of boxes in, an, in another place, but in a less structured environment than most manufacturing robots, um, or real-time data inspection in extremely remote areas, or shoot parachuting into um, you know areas with forest fires to get real-time data collection of where there are still small burning embers and things like that that might kick the fire up. Right now, firefighters do that. It's a very dangerous job. You should send robots in. So a lot of applications like that that I think are going to um, start to be useful as, as early applications for legged machines. What, what do you think will be some of the first, uh, so wrapping up, what do you think will be some of the first applications for legged robots in normal society? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, I think some of the very first applications are going to be things in relatively structured environments that are still... Uh, um, not as structured as one would need for, for wheels in an environment. So, for example, if you have a big warehouse, well, wheels are going to work great. But now if you're trying to load a truck, every time the truck backs up against the, you know, the loading dock, it's a little high or a little lower, there's a little gap there, and maybe wheels are going to get stuck sideways in it after a number of hours and things like that. But a pair of legs and a good pair of arms may be able to take a stack of boxes from the loading dock to the truck. And all it's doing is loading boxes. Um, maybe something like that is one of the uh, one of one of the early applications. Certainly, uh, inspection in dangerous areas, sending legged robots into nuclear contaminated spaces. There's quite a lot of those. Uh, you know, when when the Fukushima Daiichi uh, power plant disaster happened, there was a general call for robots that can go into this place and check it out. And, and we just didn't have any. Nobody had a robot that could capably walk up the stairs, go through the door, you know, navigate in a cluttered human environment. Uh, and, and certainly our robots would, would be able to do that in the near future. Uh, I also think things like inspecting uh, dams, you know, inside the, the, the giant causeways and pipelines inside those areas, you don't really want to send people in there. Uh, but it is set up with walkways and stairs and things like that. And so having a robot go through and uh, control it via telepresence and uh, very good data collection, um, those will be some of the early applications, I think. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And that's it for today. But before you switch off, please consider if you could help us to bring you the latest from the IROS conference later this year by becoming a patron of the RoboHut podcast on Patreon. You can support us for as much or as little as you like, and we certainly wouldn't want anyone to be out of pocket. But every dollar really makes a difference. And if you can spare the cost of a coffee or daily newspaper each month to support the RoboHut podcast, we'd be delighted to call you one of our patrons. Find out more at robohub.org forward slash podcast. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Cassie with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. <laughs>